Are you a current or former student of the University of Otago in Dunedin? Did you have a great story to tell about your time there? Then I want to hear from you. I am currently making an episode about Otago student and flatting culture, and I thought it might be a bit fun to have some stories to tell in that episode. The stories can be funny, silly, gross, dramatic, or really whatever you want, as long as the story is good. I'd also prefer if it was true, but I won't know if you embellish a few details. They can also be from any decade, so whether you were at Otago a few years ago or in the 80s, I'd still love to hear from you. I'll choose the best ones to read out in the episode, and you are more than welcome to remain anonymous if you so choose. I understand that some of these stories you may not want coming back to bite you on the ass, so you can share them with me in confidence. If you have a story you would like to tell, you can DM me on Twitter at History Aotearoa or Instagram or Facebook, History of Aotearoa New Zealand Podcast, or you can send it to me via email, historyaotearoa at gmail.com. Remembering Aotearoa is spelt A-O-T-E-A-R-O-A. I'm hoping that I'm going to get some really great stories, so thank you in advance. Kia ora, g'day and welcome to the history of Aotearoa, New Zealand. Episode 76, Ball and Water Sports. This podcast is supported by our amazing patrons. If you want to support Hans, go to patreon.com slash history Aotearoa. Last time, we began looking at Taonga Takaro, Māori Games, At this stage, games that involved some physical activity. Today, we'll be talking about some more nā mahitinana, physical games that involved running around, jumping, throwing, catching and other sweat-inducing activities. In particular, we'll be talking about ki orahi, a Māori ball game that bears some slight similarity to rugby. Before we get there though, we have some other games to talk about that we couldn't fit into the last episode. Let's start with games involving pirori. These were basically hula hoops made of vines, such as supplejack, and were about 60 centimetres in diameter, though some could be rather large, up to 3 metres. Pirori were used in many different types of games. A fairly straightforward one was to throw a pirori as high as you could into the air and catch it as it came back down. The person who threw it the highest and caught it successfully wins. This is kind of similar to games we saw last time, whereby a poi was thrown up and some sort of song or verse was recited. In those games, the aim wasn't explicitly to throw the poi as high as you could. The goal was to recite as much of the verse as fast as possible, or in as little throws as possible, which of course was made easier by throwing the poi higher. So for these games, the reciting acted as the measurement of success, replacing the need to assess how high the poi was before the invention of standardised rulers. A pretty clever workaround. For whatever reason though, this format wasn't followed for games involving pirori. Māori wanted to explicitly know who had thrown their hoop the highest. To this end, these throwing games would be played next to a tree, with the trunk, branches and other defining features acting as visual markers to determine how high a pirori was thrown, and thus 
who had thrown it the highest, making them the winner. A slightly more complicated game had multiple pirori on the ground with sticks between them. The idea was to hop over the hoops, pick up the stick with your feet, and then throw it into the other hoops. Though I'm unsure how the game was won, or if there was any sort of scoring system. Another game involved players standing in two lines, and throwing hoops back and forth to each other. Again, not sure how this was scored, but presumably it was whichever pair managed to throw and catch the pirori the furthest. There was also a game called Pai Peke, which had the player spin the hoop around their legs, hips, or even neck, while the other players tried to time themselves well enough to jump through the pirori without getting caught in it. The higher up the player the hoop was, the more difficult the game became, so sometimes less skilled players would make it a bit easier by jumping off a wall or tree branch if needed. We was a team game where each team would be standing in a circle holding hands, with the pirori sitting on their arms. The goal was to move, step through, and otherwise get the hoop around everyone in the team without breaking the circle by letting go of anyone's hands. Of course, the added excitement was that you had to do this before the other team did. Some pirori games also involved using them as targets, by just trying to throw something into it as it lay on the ground, often with some sort of rhythmical or musical element to it. Just as there were all sorts of different games on land, there were a variety of pastimes that involved the water. Like a lot of places in the world, swimming was popular in areas on the coast, or where there was a decently sized river, such as the Waikato River. Swimming competitions were fairly standard, in that it was mostly about being the fastest, getting from one place to another. What is quite interesting is that pre-European Māori swimmers would have likely looked very similar when racing to the finish line as our modern Olympic swimmers. Obviously, they didn't have the cap, goggles and speedos, but Māori had four different styles of stroke, three of which corresponded roughly to today's breaststroke, backstroke and freestyle. They also apparently had what Best calls a side stroke, but in typical Elston Best fashion, he doesn't elaborate on what this was or what it looked like. The only thing he really says further is that it was favoured for longer distances, and was the most popular stroke. Something else that is quite similar to today is that a popular activity was to jump into the water from a high place, be that a tree, a cliff, or a rope swing which of course is still enjoyed by modern kids in Aotearoa. Large sticks could also be used as diving boards when put over the edge of a bank, though they weren't very springy. Diving like this was called ruku in te reo, and Best found it rather unusual, because Māori would jump in feet first, whereas Europeans would dive in head first. Again, Best doesn't really expand on this observation, other than he observed it, so I'm a little unsure why he thought it was important enough to write down, as I find it unlikely that kids in Europe were doing proper diving techniques every time they ran down to the river to have some fun. The reason Māori probably went feet first though, is that there was some recorded instances of deaths from when someone had jumped into the water head first and hit a rock or something similar. To get to the point of being able to unleash your kids upon the water, 
they of course had to be taught how to not immediately drown. Swimming was taught from a very young age, with dried gourds sometimes being put in nets and tied to the child to act as a flotation device to help them as they learned. The gourd could also just be held close to the chest with one hand as the other did the swimming, but this wasn't very common. No doubt because it was awkward and impractical. Kind of like how you would try to push down an inflated football in the water and it would just quickly pop back up again. The rope swings I mentioned a minute ago were called moari and weren't exactly like the rope swings you would think of today, though the concept was pretty similar. They would be made of the trunk of the kahikatea tree, with cords hanging off the top that were what was used to swing around on. As you might expect, these were usually erected near a river or lake so that the swinger could swing over the body of water, let go and make a big splash fairly safely. This wasn't always the case though. Moari were sometimes set up in areas that were open and without any water in sight. In general, these rope swings would have a dozen or so ropes attached to them at the top, with the trunk set to a slight lean to stop the cords from wrapping around the trunk and getting tangled. The way they were attached at the top was by a little ring, which was made of harakeke or similar fibre. This ring would act as a swivel and help the ropes go around the trunk more easily, though it wasn't always used. So between the ring and the trunk set to a bit of a lean, there were two systems to allow the ropes to move around freely and not get caught up, which Best found rather unusual. He acknowledges that if the ring was used, then he isn't sure why the trunk was on a lean, since they both served the same purpose. Though personally, I suspect that problems had been encountered in the past which had resulted in the final design, which is often why products end up the way they do. Injuries were fairly common, as you might have guessed, with one account saying, quote, I once saw a Māori sent spinning through the air from a 60 feet Māori and disappear through the tops of some pūriri trees. He was not killed, but he could not bear us to touch him as many of his bones were broken, end quote. Interestingly, some moari were erected as a form of mourning for dead loved ones. Although it was more popular in the warmer regions of the Pacific, there was a bit of surfing going on in Aotearoa, either with or without a board, or sometimes with a small waka. As far as I can tell, it seems to be pretty similar to modern surfing. You swim out to a spot on a wooden board, which was just under a metre in length, wait for a wave to come, and then ride it back to shore. The boards were called kōpapa, which is also the term for a small waka. These waka would sometimes have two or three people in them, and were used in much the same way as the wooden boards were. They would paddle out, wait for a wave, and then ride it back in. The main difference being that the person at the bow would use their paddle to steer the vessel somewhat, and stop them from being parallel to the wave, which would no doubt cause them to capsize. If they didn't have a paddle, or they lost it in the wave, they would jump into the water and grab the stern, with the ensuing drag causing the waka to face the direction they wanted to go. Though, I doubt it was a very pleasant experience. Funnily enough, surfing was very popular in the east coast of the North Island, where, I believe, surfing is still quite popular to this day. A more recent development in Māori sea sports is waka ama, 
which came about in the 1980s. There is evidence to suggest that Māori did have some form of waka racing prior to European arrival, but the sport in its modern form came about much more recently. Part of its appeal is that it is very similar to other boating sports that most of the world would be familiar with, but with a Māori and wider Polynesian twist, as all the vessels use a single-hulled waka with an outrigger, just like has been used in the Pacific for thousands of years. From what I can gather, the sport was mostly pioneered by two guys, Chris Keldson and Bo Herbert, who had a company in Northland building Chinese dragon boats for racing, which was gaining popularity in the 80s. Dragon boats, like Polynesian waka, have a long history, and in fact are paddled in much the same way. So a lot of the boat building skills Keldson and Herbert had were likely transferable to building outrigger canoes. What they wanted to do then was to encourage the creation of more boating clubs, specifically for vessels with outriggers, which would, in turn, increase demand for their skills and services. To this end, they applied to the International Polynesian Canoe Federation in 1988 to host the next World Outrigger Canoe Championships here in New Zealand, which were to be held in 1990. The federation gave them the nod, but the problem then became that they couldn't keep up with demand. They were the only outrigger manufacturer in the entire country, and they were basically based out of a shed. To try alleviate this, they went to the government for some aid, which resulted in them getting some subsidised labour. They also did some very clever marketing by calling the sport Waka Ama, which tied it to the Māori sports of old, which appealed to both sports agencies and iwi alike, who also provided support and funding. From there, the company grew to become one of the leading manufacturers of outrigger waka in Aotearoa. Now, most of this info was taken from one particular source, and I should stress that the origins of the company differ on their website. Looking at the website of Moana Nui, the name of the company, it says that they were founded in 1987, so that the pair could build the fleet of waka for the world champs. This seems to imply that they weren't founded to make dragon boats, and weren't as much of the driving force behind the world champs being brought here. Additionally, the official Wakaama NZ website makes no mention of Moana Nui, or really anything from the above story. Whatever the case, the commodification of the sport has been, and still is, debated. But some do consider that, since the sport has been backed by various iwi, and people with a lot of mana, all of whom have given the sport karakia, various traditions and such, that it is as Māori as anything else. Many view invention, innovation, and change, whilst still holding true to Māori values and customs, as the way forward for Māori in general, and that this is one aspect of that. That is to say, even if it isn't totally based on something that was being done by their tūpuna, that doesn't make it any less legitimately Māori. This is just one view though. There are also those that feel that Māori culture, language, etc. should push against change, as this is what was essentially forced on them through colonisation. This is a very large generalisation though, and not really something that's my place to comment on. 
All this practice being in and around the water ended up being rather useful upon the arrival of Europeans. Māori, and in fact many indigenous peoples in the Pacific, were so confident in their swimming that after being captured, put on a ship, and out of sight of land, they would sneak off at night, jump into the sea, and just swim back home. Alright then, let's talk about probably one of the most popular and well-known Māori games, Kiorahi. As I mentioned at the start, Kiorahi is a ball game that has similar concepts in it as rugby, such as running with the ball in the arm and tackling to stop the opposing team scoring. The game has been revived and become very popular in recent years, and is played in tournaments all across the country and in schools. We do know that the modern version of the game was condensed from a few similar games. Best recorded a number of ball games just from Tuhoi, so it is possible that some of the game has been changed to fit an audience that is familiar with rugby, to make it a bit easier to get into. In fact, the term ki o rahi itself is a modern term, and likely wasn't used by Māori who played their version hundreds of years ago. The name surfaced around 1940, and is often used in reference to any Māori game that is played on a circular field. Yeah, it's played on a circular field. The field, being circular, has a pillar in the middle, called a pōtupu, or just tupu. Otherwise, there could be a pōtangata, a person in the middle acting in place of the tupu. There are also seven other po around the field, but we'll get into how the field is set up and how the game is played in a minute. Being a ball game, Kiorahi obviously has a ball as a central component, called a ki. Historically, this would be any sort of roundish object, such as a poi, with some poi being made especially for the game. Sometimes a pumice stone or a ball made of wood could also be used as well. Nowadays, a soccer ball is the key of choice, rather than a rugby ball, as that is oval and the game needs to be played with a round ball. Upon the arrival of Europeans, missionaries weren't too keen on the game, as they associated it with paganism, and specifically phallic worship, due to the potupu at the centre of the field, which is a key component of the game. This is, of course, absolutely not the case. As far as we know, there was no element of fallacies being an even minor part of the game, with Best saying, quote, it is difficult to see where any proof lies, end quote. For a bunch of fellas that were often about abstinence, they sound pretty obsessed with other people's genitals. On a more serious note, this meant that missionaries, who were going around converting the Māori population to Christianity, were discouraging these games to be played, and as such, a lot of knowledge around them was lost as they were played less and less. So let's get into how the game is actually played. As mentioned before, Kiorahi involves tackling other players, so it is a full contact game, though there are touch versions or ripper rugby tags can be used instead if you aren't into being slammed into the ground. The field is circular and is about 45 metres in diameter and split into different zones. Today these are marked out quite visibly with lines or with each zone being a different colour if it's an artificial turf. 
Pre-European Māori didn't have the option of changing the ground to look fancy colours though, so instead they would mark the field out by digging the lines into the ground, or into the sand if it was being played on a beach. Otherwise, they would just forego the lines entirely, and the zones would be just kind of agreed upon by all players. So let's go through each of the zones and how big they are and what they were kind of for. After that, we'll go through the rules and how the game is played. This can be kind of confusing if you don't have a visual aid to help you. So I'll put up a picture on historyaltearoa.com under this episode with an example of the field, so you can get an idea of where everything is and the different areas that I'm talking about. At the centre of the field was the tupu, as we mentioned before. This is a central part of the game, and is one of the ways points are scored. Usually it was a large log or rock, but it could also be a carved po as well, often named after a tipuna. The area that the tupu is situated is the wairua, the same word that means soul or spirit. The wairua is pretty small and is only immediately around the tupu. Around the wairua is the pāwero, and when the tupu, wairua and pāwero are combined, they make up the motu, island. This area is about 9 to 10 metres in diameter, and is linked to the story of Rahitu Takahina, a demigod that became trapped on a motu and escaped. The pāwero slash motu is the circle in the centre of the field, and is surrounded by another zone in a ring, called Teroto, the lake. This area is about 6 metres wide, except for a 2 metre wide gap in one side. This gap is tiara and connects the motu to the outermost area of the field. Tiara, meaning the path, represents the path that Rahitu Takahina took to escape the island, and is related to the movement of players in the motu and out into Tiao. Tiao, the world, is the outermost area, and could be the largest area of play depending on how the field is set up, being about 10 metres wide. Within it are seven other po set at regular intervals. In the old days, these would sometimes be small logs that were occasionally carved, or if that wasn't available, they could just be sticks put into the ground or large flat rocks, or even just a mound of dirt. Today, modern sports equipment is used for safety. The final area is Timarama, the moon, and is a small circle of space on the edge of the field, on the same side as Tiara the path to escape the motu. This area is mostly only used to begin play, either at the start of a quarter or after a tupu manua, a try, is scored. To begin, a player will throw the ball from te marama into the motu. If they don't do this, possession of the ball is handed over to the opposing team. So that's how the field was arranged and set up, but now we need some rules to actually play it. These rules do change slightly depending on where you are and who you're playing with, but this will give you a pretty good idea of how the game is played. Each game has quarters, which can last 5 to 15 minutes, again depending on who is playing. Before kickoff, players are split into two teams, the Ki Oma, or Ball Carrier Team, and Tanifa, or Creatures of the Lake Team, with each team placing themselves around the field. Each team plays half the game as Kioma and the other half as Tanifa, switching sides either every quarter or at half time. So both teams get to have a go at both modes of play. 
Depending on what team they are on, the areas they are allowed to put themselves is restricted. To me, this is one of the most interesting aspects of Kiorahi, because unlike rugby, football, basketball and other sports, each team isn't trying to achieve the same goal, and in fact, they don't score points in the same way either. It's a very asymmetrical game. Each team has eight or so players. For the Kioma team, they can split their players into two areas. Up to three players in the motu, with the other five in Tiao. The exception being when play starts, there is one person in Tamarama to begin the game, who then joins the players in Tiao. The players in the motu are called the Kaitiaki, guardians, and as you might suspect from their name, their job is to stop the ball from touching the tupu, which is how the Tanifa team scores. The catch is that the Kioma team are only allowed three players in the motu at any one time, and they're not allowed to step over the boundary into the surrounding Teroto. As such, the only way out of the motu is via Tiara, the path through Teroto, which is how the players enter and exit the motu if they want to increase or decrease the amount of players guarding the tupu. They also aren't allowed to interfere with the game as they are running through Tiara. Players in Tiao, on the other hand, well, their goal is to touch the ball to the seven po around Tiao. For every po they touch, they bank one point. Those banked points aren't counted in the score though, unless they are able to make a try. This is done by entering Teroto, which they can only do with the ball, and must get the ball on the ground in the motu. If they manage to do this, any banked points they have are added to their score. Of course, this is easier said than done, as while the Kiyoma team is trying to do all of this, the Tanifa team is trying to tackle you, and if they are successful, position of the ball changes. The Tanifa team are allowed to place their players anywhere in Tiao and Teroto, and are able to move through those areas whenever they want. The only place they aren't allowed to go is into the motu itself. This can vary slightly, with some rules saying they're allowed a maximum of 5 players in Teroto trying to score, and 3 players in Tiao defending the Po, though all their players can be in Tiao when Kioma have possession and are trying to score. The way the Tanifa team scores is by making the key touch the tupu. This can be either by throwing or kicking it from Teroto, or jumping from there into the motu and throwing, provided the ball is released before they touch the ground, or even if the Kioma team accidentally make the ball touch the tupu. However the key manages to touch it, when it does hit the tupu, the Tanifa team score a point. If the key lands in the motu, it is handed back to the Tanifa team, but if it lands outside the motu, play continues with no stopping. The Tanifa players are only given about 5 seconds to make a shot once they are in Teroto with the ball, the timer resetting every time a shot is made, so players encouraged to be fast and shots at the tupu frequent. There are also rules around penalties and the like, but that is most of how to play Ki Orahi, which is played all across the country at various marae and inter-iwi tournaments. Next time, we will continue discussing physical games that use a variety of fun objects, from balls to stilts. 
we also expand on the old Matariki episode to talk about some interesting uses for kites. If you want to send me feedback, ask a question, suggest a topic, or just have a chinwag, you can find my email and social media on historyaotearoa.com. Aotearoa spelt A-O-T-E-A-R-O-A. You can also find helpful resources there, like transcripts, sources, and translations for some of the te reo Māori we have used. You can help support Hans through Patreon, buying merch, or giving us a review. It means a lot and helps spread the story of Aotearoa New Zealand. As always, hairitu watu, hoki tu mai. See you next time.